Welcome to Under the Ring Pro Wrestling Conversations. My name is Phil Strum. The guest on today's show was a very powerful person in the WWE hierarchy for a long time. He jokes that he was once listed somewhere as the seventh powerful person in WWE. It's Brian Gewurz. Brian was heading up WWE Creative when he was very young, which is an enormous responsibility. These days, he works as a senior vice president of Seven Bucks Entertainment, the production company owned by Dwayne The Rock Johnson and Danny Garcia, working on shows like Young Rock on NBC, the upcoming Territory series that starts in October on Vice. Brian has a book coming out this week on Tuesday about his time in WWE titled There's Just One Problem. It's really good. I've been looking forward to this episode for quite a while. I would like to warn you if I sound a little different on this, this is the first thing I've attempted to record uh, while recovering from COVID-19. Just a reminder to everybody, the pandemic is not over yet, folks. It doesn't mean you can't live your lives. I lost personally a very close family member to me to this virus in 2021. So just please try to be mindful and respectful of the person sitting next to you, uh, who the virus could end up affecting more than it does to you. And with that, here we go with Brian Gortz. I am so happy to welcome to the show today the former WWE head writer and acknowledged as the former one-time seventh most powerful person in WWE, the senior VP of development at Seven Bucks Productions, Brian Gewertz. Brian, thank you so much for joining me today. Phil, thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, thank you for your fashion choice, wearing a, a <laughs> nice long sleeve, it looks like, pullover. No, pullover. Oh, short sleeve. Yeah, okay, I, just, I buttoned the top button, though. So Yeah, looks good. That's the point. Yeah, exactly. They may never lose again, which by, my, by the time this comes out on Monday, I might eat those words, but we'll see. So we'll start off with your book, which comes out on Tuesday. There's just one problem. Was there a moment in your journey where you recognized like, wow, this would make a great book? What, when, what made you decide to write this? You know, it was something that I had in the back of my mind um, as far as wanting to parlay the WWE experience into something. Um, you know, when I first started, I had designs on like, oh, well, maybe this will, um, maybe this, this, I could use this as far as, a, you know, developing a sitcom one day, because that was initially where, you know, where the world that I had come in from, you know, the, the writing on sitcoms and stuff. Um, and then, you know, as, you know, ultimately when the pandemic hit in, in 2020, you know, I found myself with like a lot of, uh, you know, as we all did, you know, a lot of time. In, in our homes, in our apartments, um, and a lot of time to think and, and, and really, you know, ponder all of life. And, and that was like, especially, you know, uh, again, just to take your mind off of everything that was going on. I had talked with Dwayne Johnson, Danny Garcia, the heads of Seven Bucks, um, and said, hey, would you, what would you guys think about this if I kind of put pen to paper? Because, you know, over the years, you, you have a lot of stories, you accumulate a lot of stories. If you don't have, I've always said, if you don't have enough material uh to write a book after 16 years in wwe uh then you might be doing something wrong so that was something that you know it really and by the way seeing like people like bruce pritchard who i had worked with who ultimately you know became a really successful podcaster basically just telling stories and telling stories that i had heard him tell you know backstage at wwe for a long time i was like you know what i think i think now especially now too with wwe and, and the world of wrestling in general opening up a lot more and there's a lot more behind the scenes content, um, podcasts, documentaries, what have you than ever been before, probably in the history of the business, especially when it comes to WWE specifically. Um, you know, it just all seemed like the right time in terms of having time and being the right time too. 
And you seem to pull back the curtain in a very respectful way. I think a lot of books, sometimes in wrestling, people expect like all the dirt and everything you're possible. Everybody's going to get knocked and everything like that. But, you know, it's really your journey within that realm and you getting used to it. And I, I, I thought that that approach, I, I, I think fans would probably really like too. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah. You know, I tried to kind of take my cues from like Mick Foley's books and Chris Jericho's books where it's certainly none, none, none of their books that they've written and they've written several, you know, can be kind of considered just like a, uh, you know, everything presented on a nice little platter with rose colored glasses or anything like that. You know, they, they were, they were truthful and they were entertaining and they were self deprecating. And I just thought they you know, I couldn't wait for a new one to come out. I always thought they were really good. And, and the fact is, you know, WWE wrestling in general, um, I don't really have, dirty laundry there might be a couple stains um some creases some things that <laughs> need ironing um but there's really like nothing you know like truly there's no like uh i'd never had like a heisenberg moment after i left where i'm like i need to burn this all down um you know i, I we're still you know Dwayne the rock johnson he still you know has wwe obviously in his dna he goes back and forth i go with him when he does um, and we're working, you know, at seven bucks, we're working with WWE on a number of projects too, including young rock. So it just seemed like there wasn't any reason to, you know, you know, the people, for some people that works and they have those kind of stories to tell and it fits their, uh, you know, style and everything for me. Um, I think it could be just as fascinating to just have something that's very truthful and, and not like, you know, slanted or rose colored glasses or anything, uh, but really just entertaining. And, and that was like really my main focus. So the role of the creative writer in wrestling seems to be an important yet completely misunderstood role to the general public and possibly even to a lot of the people within wrestling too. What to you is the most vital part of the role of a creative writer within pro wrestling? Um, well, first of all, there's like, there's the necessity of it, at least when it comes to WWE. Uh, every company is different. You know, AEW, they might have a very different approach as it relates to writers and stuff like that, <laughs> meaning they might not even have any, as far as I know. Um, but, you know, in WWE, there's like, you you have the, the, just the ticking clock every single week of a show that needs to be live on Monday, and now a show that needs to be live on Friday, and a pay-per-view that's live on either Saturday or Sunday. Um, and a ton of characters, i.e. a ton of wrestlers. Um, and, and you need storylines that are compelling and, and ones that like are, uh, you know, in some respects grounded and relatable in other respects, you know, larger than life and like the real, you know, reason why you have a television show and somebody's got to kind of put all those together and, and kind of oversee it and, and propose stuff and create stuff. Um, you know, and it's kind of, you know, that's kind of where I know like the, the wrestling writers has been, you know, poo-pooed in the sense of like, well, for the first century plus of wrestling, you didn't need wrestling writers and it did just fine. Uh, and that's true. But like, I don't think wrestling's ever been presented, at least in WWE, um, you know, 90s and beyond as this two to four to eight hours of primetime television every single week that needs to be accounted for. Um, you know, but in terms of the most most vital aspect, to me, the most vital is establishing relationships with the wrestlers themselves and gaining trust and, you know, um, 
in kind of a, a, a nice back and forth flow as far as sharing ideas. Uh, because at the end of the day, I found the most success I've ever had was collaborating with wrestlers, working with them, not dictating to them. Um, and, you know, seeing what we can get and putting it up on the air. It always seemed to me, too, that it's more important to have maybe the long term planning as much as you can within something like WWE rather than the heavy, heavy scripting at all times. But then again, I'm a fan and you were actually there. So do you, do you think that it's more the role of the writer is better for the, the kind of the overarching kind of thing with the with the characters? Yes, I, I do. And I've always felt like the role of the writer in WWE is essentially to to act as a you know to assist the wrestlers and talent again not to dictate to them because they know their characters better than anyone and if they don't know their characters better than anyone it's good to have a sounding board and someone to collaborate with to you know see what works what if we tried this what if we didn't try this so yes the long-term storyline sometimes it's out of your hand you know there's so many variables when it comes to long-term storylines as far as you know the obvious ones of, of people getting injured on live events and everything you know you change one thing it's a domino effect and everything else changes uh and sometimes it's crowd reaction because you really you really do need to listen to the crowd um and sometimes that could dictate whether or not you know you move forward with an angle or storyline or not but as far as you know uh scripting versus unscripting because that's a very very heavily talked about um and, and sometimes misunderstood yeah. aspect of the wwe job i don't think there's one writer that i've ever worked with um who are who's currently there now who prefers we don't need the, the wrestler doesn't need to worry about it i've got this i'm going to script it and you need to say it word for word where that kind of came from i think is there was a you know tendency when the the company wwe went public right. um and when when uh you know there was a very kind of, you know, the company went PG rating and it was very sensitive to advertisers and sponsors, not that it isn't now, but especially then, um, to make sure that there's not going to be any, anything that's said on the air that wasn't already known of and approved of. And you had that fine line of like, you know, the being able to at least, you know, in the case of Vince, having his trust to go out there and work with the talent and have them, you know, do a promo, hopefully, with them contributing to it heavily uh, with a lot of their input. Um, and also that fine line of like, you know, the boss wanting to know what is being said on his television show and needing to approve it, especially if it's not a talent that he's all that, you know, worked closely with or familiar with if it's a new talent or something. So yeah, it, it's one of those things. And I think, I mean, again, I haven't worked there full time in seven years, but from what I understand, I think the reins have loosened a little bit. Um, and you have hopefully now like this nice balance of like trust. People can go out. They know they trust the talent and the writer that they know nothing's going to be said. That's going to like get anyone to trouble with the sponsors or anything like that. You're not going to just drop, you know, uh, language that shouldn't be used just to get a cheap pop or anything like that. And if, it, and if you do, um, you know, maybe that's one thing you check on ahead of time and make sure that it's okay to do. But yeah, I mean, I, I never. I never truly um, enjoyed the idea of handing someone a script and saying, go do it. Some, some wrestlers actually prefer that, not many, but some have like a lot to get in their heads as far as their matches and everything else that's going on and be like, please ease my burden, you know, put something together. Uh, you know, Kurt Angle was like that when he first started. Um, but, you know, again, for the most part, collaboration, I think, is the best. 
And Kurt Angle specifically just seemed like such a good character to collaborate with. All of the stuff that he did right off the bat was just so excellent. Oh, yeah. I mean, Kurt is awesome. He's an awesome human being. He was awesome to collaborate with because <laughs> it's like no matter how ridiculous uh, a scenario you would give to him, uh, and you would think, especially when it came to working with me, you would think an Olympic gold medalist uh, would have some sort of standards. But he really didn't uh, as far as like willing to try and do anything like we want you to like look like a complete fool. OK, great. We want you your your yeah, main event, you know, level WrestleMania. I want to say almost a feud, um, <laughs> you know, angle with Shawn Michaels. Um, what do you think about singing a parody of his theme song with Sherry Martel? <laughs> You're like, great. What do you think about getting to a rap battle with John Cena and, and giving him a hug and saying that's basic hugonomics? Perfect. Like, what do you think of, you know, you know, losing a lo loser gets his head shaved match and putting on this ridiculous wig with a, you know, wrestling, uh, you know, protective gear or what have you is like, sign me up. <laughs> you know, he, he was just just like a writer's dream, really. Um, and anyone's dream to, to you know. And on top of that, he's this like phenomenon in the ring who is like just just has these relatively short experience in the pro wrestling business, but took to it like nobody else. And I will say for anybody listening, if you have not ever seen Sexy Kurt, <laughs> you should take a look at that because it's one of the funniest, uh, one of the funniest things of all time to see him and uh, Sensational Sherry in there doing their thing. I'm very proud. I don't have many songwriting credits to my name, but I, I do have uh, that one. It's like a co-writing credit with Jimmy Hart. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. If anyone might have a perspective for the inner workings of WWE, it's you. As the company moves now from Vince McMahon to Stephanie McMahon and Paul Levesque, all people you've worked with a ton, how do you see things changing just from a creative aspect? You kind of alluded to a little bit with kind of maybe loosening the, the reins a little bit. I think there's already been some noticeable changes in terms of who's featured and some of the formatting things and things like that. But what do you think that fans will expect and notice about kind of who's in charge of the creative now? Well, you know, one of the things, you know, that, that I found to be kind of difficult, uh, you know, in my time writing was just the fact that like, like Vince, you know, in charge of creative was also in charge of everything. And that limited the amount of time he had. And time is essential, especially when you're putting together hours upon hours of television. So when you would finally get to meet with him, you know, usually you definitely needed to cover the main event stuff and the, um, you know, the, the opening stuff in the middle of the show and everything. Um, and oftentimes, you know, you didn't have the time to do the, you know, to give the TLC to, to the quote unquote, you know, mid card and lower card angles and stuff like that. Um, and a lot of that was done on the fly at television. Sometimes it was successful and sometimes it wasn't. And, you know, that was because he had so many responsibilities as CEO and, and, and there were aspects of the company that like, you know, when I, when I finally, I, I never thought about before I worked there, but, you know, between board meetings and sales and merchandise and, negotiating, you know, uh, rights fees and everything, everything flowed through him. So creative, which in my opinion should have, you know, taken a big chunk of time, 
often out of necessity would take just, you know, much, much smaller amount of time, um, you know, with, with Triple H. And again, not, uh, that Paul um, doesn't have other responsibilities in addition to creative, you know, him doing um, head of talent relations and everything else. But I see a lot more time that he could hopefully be um, devoted to WWE, um, you know, the creative and, and both shows. So just that alone, the fact that you'll have hopefully more time to discuss and pitch creative and talk about more characters and talk about, you know, the intricacies of backstories and where potentially you're going down the road. You know, time is so huge when you're trying to write these things. Um, you know, and Vince had limited time with it. Hopefully uh, Paul has more. Um, but I think that's going to be such an advantage, an advantage that nobody really talks about. The fact that you can now like truly, truly talk about more than just the top two or three storylines. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, what was the most important thing that Vince McMahon brought to the creative realm of wrestling? You speak about your relationship with him in the book. And um, I think I've probably heard more takes on Vince McMahon than maybe anybody in, in wrestling. So what, what, what really did he bring to the table on a daily basis? You know, the, the best thing I would say about Vince is you knew who the boss was and the buck stopped with him and he would take ownership of any decision that he made. Um, you didn't, there was no second guessing of like, oh, well, maybe if this person doesn't like it, then this person will like it. And it's like, no, if Vince likes it, it will go in. If he doesn't, um, then it won't. And he was also, you know, a strong proponent of leadership by example. That's one of the things he always tried to, you know, impart on all of us, um, you know, for me as a, as a head writer to the writing team. Um, and, you know, he owned that. He would, you know, if there was, uh, if there was something, you know, that the talent would be kind of had question marks, he'd be great. Let me do it out in the ring in front of everybody. Uh, and I'll show you uh, exactly what you'll be doing. I'm not going to, you know, his, his, one of his famous quotes was, I'll never make someone do something that I wouldn't do myself. Uh, and he, he talked the talk and walked the walk. You know, it was, it's hard to really, um, you know, it's difficult to argue with the boss in general um, as far as, uh, you know, trying to, you know, not respect his ultimate final say and opinion. But when you're the first one showing up at work and the last one leaving, and going to every show and doing all the things, you know, both as an on-camera talent um, and behind the scenes that, you know, really uh, a CEO and, and a, you know, multi-millionaire slash billionaire really doesn't have to do, but does anyway, because they're so passionate about it. Um, you know, that, that permeates on down. You're like, man, if, if Vince is showing up to every show, if he's so invested, you know, in, in, in all these things, um, I, I got to be up at that level or at least try to. So you work for the Dwayne, the rock Johnson and Danny Garcia's company, seven bucks entertainment. Now I told a couple of my friends, Hey, if you have any messages for the rock, I could be a very bizarre go between for you today. And the only one I got really was, Hey, let them know that skyscraper was an overlooked classic and that his leading women are always age appropriate. And I was like, gee, thanks. <laughs> but kidding aside, what is it like to work for them? You know, it, it's, it's, to work with, uh, you know, Dwayne and Danny Garcia, Hiram Garcia, the president of Seven Bucks. It's really, you know, a lot of lessons from WWE has kind of permeated to Seven Bucks as well. Um, and that is just like between, I would say between Vince, Dwayne and Danny, like the work ethics are unparalleled. You know, there there is no, you know, like, uh, I'll, I'll just sit back and, 
you know, hopefully it will work out well. It's like if their name is on something, um, whether it's a television show, a movie, a business venture, um, you know, they are going to be full knees deep in it um, on multiple aspects of it, too. So, you know, and again, that kind of that that permeates on down. That is, you know, the leadership by example thing. It's real um, because you see them working so hard and you're kind of inspired to to do, you know, you don't want to let anybody down, but you also want to like be up at that level or, or as close to it as you can. Um, so, yeah, I would say that's that's one of the things. And, and, and the other thing is like, but the reason um, the reason why I like worked so well with Dwayne at the beginning was he had this attitude of like, I don't really know this guy when I first met him, but prove me what you got. And if what you got is good, then um, then, yeah, let's work together. And if what you got isn't good, then I'll be just fine <laughs> regardless. So that approach, you know, really helped me because he didn't have to do that when I started at WWE. He could have said, well, I'm the rock. I don't know who you are. Um, I don't need to work with you. I'm, I'm a WrestleMania main eventer, which he was. I'm over. Um, but instead, he, he like said, yeah, let's let's show me what you got. Um, and that approach really, you know, applies to certainly television development and people, you know, any idea. It, it doesn't necessarily have to matter where it comes from or who pitches it. If it's a good idea and we're all passionate about it, you know, let's see it through. And if, if there's like a, a television show that like one of us in, in, on the team feels passionate about, even if it's not something that necessarily directly, you know, um, tied to Dwayne or Danny or anyone, they'll give us that space to go forward and push it forward and see, see it to the end. Um, because yeah, it's like at the bottom line is, you know, you, the, the end result is really all that matters and making sure it's good and, and, you know, fans embrace it and audience first and, and all of those things. But, you know, there's a lot of things that you could say, well, the, boy, the rock didn't have to do that, but he does that because he's so invested in wanting to make sure that every project that he's associated with, um, you know, has the work that's put into it. Some are going to be successful. Some might not be, but it will never be because of a lack of hard work. Are, are you working on this new territories project that they have with, uh, with vice coming up also? Oh yeah. Yeah. I've been, um, you know, we've been cultivating that, you know, and again, that started, you know, the origins of that project were, were through a, um, rock Instagram post. Hmm. Just the fact that as a wrestling fan, he was a fan of dark side of the ring and he posted about a couple episodes. And again, it's like, you have 300 plus million followers on Instagram. That's like a kind of a big deal when you post something on your channel. So, you know, I was like, Hey, I like that show too. Let me set a meeting with Evan and Jason, the creators of that show and see what we can all collaborate on and come up with. Um, and, you know, obviously Dwayne being third generation, he has a ton of stories about his father and his grandfather. And a lot of that we incorporate into young rock, but there's plenty of, you know, territories, as you know, and ton of wrestlers and ton of stories, you know, that are beyond the young rock sphere. So we got together um, we proposed the show. Um, we got to work with, uh, you know, Chavo Guerrero, who works on Young Rock, collaborated with him, too. And yeah, this is like something like we're really, really excited about because it's a very unfiltered as though, you know, everything on Vice TV is um, look. But we, we didn't want to focus on necessarily the negative and the dark because Dark Side already did that. Yeah. There'll be some crossover for sure. 
but we want to really focus on the crazy, incredible, like this can't be true, but it is yeah. stories of the territories from the seventies and eighties. Yeah. The truth, the truth is always <laughs> most interesting story to yeah. me when it comes to most of uh, wrestling territories. So the rock versus John Cena, the two times that it happens seems to be your WrestleMania moments, as they like to say, uh, without giving too much of the book away, what was it like working with those two against one another? And, and they're both just good at basically everything, right? Yeah, no, that was a, that was a journey <laughs> to work on, um, you know, that angle for three years with both of them, because that really, you know, you never, you never truly know how something is going to go. Obviously rock versus Cena on paper is box office and, in reality, it was box office. But the fact of the matter is they weren't on the same page at the beginning. And there was real life animosity between them that, you know, obviously has since dissipated and they're and they're really good friends now. But at the time, uh, yeah, it was heated. And I was literally in the middle of them, uh, you know, in rooms and stuff like that, trying to be like, you guys just you know, got to know each other. You'd be such great friends. And it was, you know, it had exceeded a point um, because the angle, you know, started um, not in a wrestling ring or in a wrestling, uh, you know, space. It started with an interview John had done with a paper in the UK where he was kind of blunt about his opinion in terms of how, uh, you know, Dwayne was away from WWE. He says he loved it, but he doesn't come back and that kind of thing. Whatever, whatever the language he used, it definitely rubbed Dwayne the wrong way. And so from the very start, it was, you know, there were some, even though you you show up to the arena and shake hands and how you doing and everything, there was some simmering tension um, from the very beginning. And that could be good. I mean, in some ways it was good for the angle and for the storyline and everything, but it made my job to try to like get them on the same page and, you know, make sure Vince was happy, um, you know, at the highest level, there's nothing higher level in WWE than the main event of WrestleMania. The only thing more higher than that is two main events of WrestleMania and really three when you consider, you know, Rock hosting the show, right. you know, the first time. So, yeah, that was, you know, and that's why it's it takes up a whole chapter. <laughs> that was, um, you know, very touch and go there for a second as far as, you know, are we going to bend but not break? And is this whole angle going to come, you know, tumbling out of spiraling out of control to the point where they don't like each other. They don't like each other. That could turn into not trusting each other. If they don't trust each other, then the match is going to suffer. So, um, yeah, I'm very glad with the way it ended up, minus, you know, Rock hurting himself at the Meadowlands and needing, like, surgery afterwards. Um, not so much that part, but from a relationship standpoint and from a, you know, personal standpoint, you know, the fact that, you know, John and Dwayne and myself, you know, uh, to a lesser extent, are all you know, on the same page and are cool with each other, um, you know, and to see John's success in Hollywood and to see kind of his career uh, mirror Dwayne's as far as, yes, like he'll always be a part of WWE. He'll come back occasionally, but now he's starring in movies and television shows and, you know, he understands. And John's the first one to say, I understand now. I get it. I get what Rock was doing back then. Um so yeah, it all it all turned out well in the end, but it was a little um by little I mean a lot nerve-wracking. <laughs> so easily one of the the kindest people I've ever met doing media interview media and interviews over the years who I got to cross paths with a few times was Roddy Roddy Piper. 
And in the book, you discuss your creative and personal relationship with Hot Rod. What can you share with us about your time with Piper today? Yeah, that was that was really, you know, I often wasn't nervous when working at WWE um, for a variety of reasons. Um, but working with Roddy made me nervous, at least at first, because he was my hero. I literally had a poster having uh, adorned over my bed of heel Roddy, um, you know, pointing at himself, smiling. And I really didn't want to screw this up. Um, you know, so, and I also knew going in that Roddy uh, isn't necessarily a fan of wrestling writers. He's as old school as they come. Every promo you saw, you know, in, in, in WWF in the eighties and before that, and, and, Los Angeles and Mexico and Portland and everywhere else he went came from him and him alone. So I really was walking on eggshells. I mean, I have this nearby. Um, this nice. was from my parents' basement. Um, I just rescued it. This is what I had growing up, the giant Roddy doll. In Very nice. Smaller ones. Um, and so, yeah, I was really relieved. I mean, Bruce Pritchard helped me out a great deal. Bruce Pritchard, you know, another member of the creative team who had been around for a long time uh, and was friends with Roddy. He kind of um, put in a good word for me before Roddy made his, you know, reemergence in WWE in uh, 2003 at WrestleMania 19. So that broke the tension a little bit, but then, then you had to actually write for him. And that was very intense because, you know, at the same time as a writer, you don't, first of all, you don't want to dictate to Roddy. Um, knowing his history and knowing, you know, how he works. Same time, Vince wants it a certain way and wants to know especially what Roddy's going to say out there. Um, and you also, you know, want to, you don't want to have Roddy be upset at you. You know, you don't want to have your childhood hero um, all of a sudden, like, can't stand the sight of you and doesn't want to work with you. Um, but, but, but Roddy, yeah, I mean, it was, I didn't know what to expect. But, you know, like you had alluded to, he, he was so warm and so giving yeah. and so like, hey, kid, what you, what do you got? What do you got today? And, yeah, it was a process sometimes as far as like, um, you know, working on the promo with him. Um, you know, there were times where, you know, I was in charge of assigning writers to specific promo segments and specific uh, interviews. And I would take myself off of the Roddy ones because I didn't want to risk somehow upsetting him or uh, making him mad. But, you know, that was maybe half the time. The other half, I, I did work with them. Um, you know, I worked with him on uh, his first <laughs> Piper's Pit back with Vince. Um, you know, I worked with him with a promo with Cena that was that was really, really well done. Um, one, I think, with Jericho, too. And it was, yeah, it was like, it was so thrilling to really be able, you know, they say don't meet your heroes. Um, I met mine, and it, and it worked out better than anything I could have possibly imagined. Yeah. My, my favorite thing with Roddy, whenever I'd see him, he used to do some of the, um, the cards for Northeast wrestling up in, in this kind of area. And anytime he did a meet and greet, I can't tell you the number of times I saw him ask fans for their phone so he could call their parents <laughs> and tell them how great their kids were. And I just thought that was one of the coolest things I've seen. I saw him do it a couple of times and I was just like, you know, oh. this guy gets it. Like he just does. No, totally. So we're going to move to something we call the three count now. It's going to be three okay. relatively quick questions and your answers. So the first one, 
Who is on? It's a two-part question, though. Mm -hmm. Who is on your raw guest host, Mount Rushmore? And who is on the opposite end of that, which I decided to call Mount Flushmore because I couldn't come up with anything else. <laughs> um, so Mount Rushmore, from a, from a personal standpoint, and I think mostly received well shows. Um, Bob Barker, he's he's in the Washington spot. <laughs> um, I thought I thought Shaquille O'Neal did an awesome job. He took it very seriously. Um, he was great. Um, Mike Tyson's return was super cool too. Uh, and it was, I mean, I, I tell a story about it in the book because it didn't go off as seamless as some of the other guest host segments. Right. Um, and I would put Ken Jong in there as well. Now Ken's show, um, let's just be honest, was not very well received. That was <laughs> the one with Jeremy Piven, uh, early where Jeremy Piven, you know, infamously called SummerSlam Summerfest. That's right. And and received the wrath of many, many fans. And Ken was there as his hype man. Um, but he was, I mean, he was, he's such a huge fan of, of, of WWE and wrestling in general. Uh, the first time, you know, I met him backstage at WWE, um, you know, he was like, did you work on the angle, uh, the Kurt Angle promo where he mentions the only good things about Canadians are Michael J. Fox and maple syrup? Like, <laughs> yeah, I did. He's like, I love that promo. Um, so yeah, Ken like put himself, you know, he really put himself out there as far as willing to be hated, uh, which is, you know, sometimes, you know, when the guest hosts would come in easier said than done, um, you know, because they're all up for it. Sometimes their publicists are like, yeah, maybe having an arena, 20,000 people booing you isn't the greatest thing in the world, um, to promote this movie. But Ken was a trooper. And of course, infamously John Cena tossed him out of the ring. You know, we rehearsed it. A whole bunch of wrestlers were there to catch him. And he still banged his head on the back of the, you know, the steel metal entrance anyway. Um, and, you know, he's a doctor. So he, you know, he, he helped himself get stitched up. And as we're like pacing outside, um, you know, I really didn't know what his reaction was going to be. Is he going to be angry? Is he going to threaten to sue us all? And instead, he just came out all smiles and was like, that was incredible. And starts hugging, excuse me, hugging everybody. Um, and really like took it as a badge of honor. So um, I, I really, you know, and I'm friends with Ken today. I really enjoyed being able to uh, work with him on that. And on the Flushmore side. Yeah. I mean, look, uh, I don't want to like bury specific people or anything. There's like, yeah. let me just say this. There's like a contingency and you know it when you see it. And I've kind of, you know, I, I was asked this question. <laughs> Jericho and I said our number one answer at the same time. And it was Al Sharpton. Mm. Uh, now, it wasn't, you know, anything really against Al Sharpton, but it was the position we put Al Sharpton in. And in some respects, uh, Joey Logano and, and Kyle Bush, I think, and, you know, a, a couple other people in that space of they are not particularly big fans of WWE. They don't particularly know anybody who's on the show. They may not even really want to be there, but they're being they're, they're going there to either promote or get their names out there and that type of thing. Um, and all those shows and there were probably like a fair percentage of those shows where it was like, well, this person knows nothing about WWE, but they want to promote their project. So we're going to have them on. I think that was one of the pitfalls of the guest host era that yes. lasted over a year. Um, <laughs> it really should have lasted for about a month or two, um, if that. 
where you could tell like the people who were there just to, you know, very, very talented people in their respective fields. But in the WWE space, um, it was like the fans didn't want to have anything to do with them. They really didn't want to have anything to do with the show. And when you have that combination, it just leads to ugliness and leads to like, when uh, can we stop this era, please? I would love for anybody listening to this, too, if anybody can produce me a Mount Rushmore graphic of Pub Barker, Shaq, Mike Tyson, and Dr. Ken, that would be perfect because I can't think of four more interesting people to get on a Mount Rushmore. Oh, my God. I, I put that on a T-shirt. Yeah. So uh, next question. Uh, this New York Mets season, is it the best one you've seen in your lifetime outside of maybe 86? Yeah, outside of 86. I mean, I was again, I was lucky. I was 13 years old um, when – 86 Mets happened. They were the theme of my bar mitzvah that year. Um, I had like foam statues of Gooden and Strawberry Hernandez, Carter, McDowell, Dykstra, like all of them. They, they, it was like, you know, and every member of the family, you know, fixed to the TV screen. Um, and you really haven't had that since. You had, you know, a really great 2006 season that, you know, unfortunately ended prematurely. Um, and then, you know, even the World Series teams since then in in 2000 and 2015, there was this sense of like, wow, suddenly the Mets are in the World Series. How did this happen? Whereas with this team, it's like that's kind of the expectation right now. Um, it's it's so surreal. And I'm also a Bills fan. So I really the Mets and Bills being good at the same time is a, is a concept that is completely like I, my, my DNA doesn't know how to handle this. Um, it's very surreal and I'm just going along for the ride. And I'm really, really glad that Young Rock uh, this season is shooting in Memphis as opposed to Australia. Um, because if, if they make the World Series, uh, it's just a three hour flight from Memphis to LaGuardia. Maybe I'll see you there if they get there. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm Islanders and Mets, so I mean, I'm, I'm on the same page with yeah, you. My team's like very, really- I'm not a huge hockey fan, but <laughs> if I have to root for a hockey team, um, yeah, I mean, I grew up on Long Island. Same. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and finally, uh, what do you think is the best thing you ever wrote in WWE? And what also do you think is the best thing you've seen in WWE that you didn't write? Okay. Interesting. Um, you know, I, I've, I've pondered this, you know, from a, from a long-term angle standpoint, I always cite the uh, Chris Jericho, Shawn Michaels, long-term storyline. Mm. Uh, you know, because it's it's not, you know, I was friends with Chris. I was not friends uh, with Sean initially. Um, and it was a very, I prided myself on the fact that it was a very serious storyline. It wasn't, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of comedy infused in it, if at all. Um, and we crafted that thing. And the three of us would, would sit down and Michael Hayes would join us. Um, and, and we'd really, really give it the attention to detail and um, you know, the, the, the respect the storyline deserved um, and made sure it was logical. And, you know, you had that dynamic, which I love, which is the heel who is clearly in the right, like Chris Jericho was, he was calling out all of Sean's hypocrisies, but because Sean was Sean and was the baby face in the storyline, you know, as fans, you forgave him and you were like, all right, Chris, just calm down. This isn't even any of your business. Um, and then involved Sean's wife and it got extremely personal um, and again, extended well beyond, especially because it wasn't intended to be anything more than maybe a, a raw or two. 
Um, the fact that we got eight months out of it. Um, you know, I put a lot of pride in that. Um, you know, and, and from a special, you know, specifically a favorite promo, um, you know, probably the most fun I ever had was working with Dwayne and The Rock on The Rock concerts. Um, and especially when he's heel rock and we we're able to heal <laughs> on the poor denizens of Sacramento um, that first time uh, later to with John Cena. Um, you know, we, Rock and I were able to, you know, come up with the lyrics of, of the first song sung to the tune of Kansas City. Later, uh, Hiram Garcia, president of Seven Bucks, uh, you know, join us and we just stay up all night uh, in his hotel, just throwing out lyrics that are well, well beyond the uh, realms of good taste and, and allowable on television. Uh, we get those out of our system. Uh, but then we'd, you know, really, you know, just have a ton of fun just producing them. And, and the fans, most importantly, were always into it and always enjoyed it. And, you know, those like I could I could, I could go on YouTube and watch those anytime. And then the, the best thing that you uh, that you've seen in WWE that you didn't write. Um, you know, there's like it's a, technically it's really just what's your favorite thing that you liked. Yeah, and, no, there's a ton. Yeah. I got to say, and again, I, like I write it about in the book, like my, my WWE awakening, you know, when I when I first realized this, this stuff is incredible, was running into my parents room as an 11 year old, when the war to settle the score on MTV took place. And it was the first time I ever saw a ref bump. You wow. know, think about that. We take those for granted now. But you're a kid and you see like the referee typically doesn't get knocked out in football and basketball. And, you know, and, and if it does, the action stops, you know, you need to check <laughs> on them. it doesn't continue. And Mr. T doesn't get out of the, you know, Madison Square Garden uh, and, and jump up on the apron to protect Cindy Lauper as Piper and Orndorff are like slowly stalking her and Hogan coming back. And, you know, it's, it's the WrestleMania one was a success for a reason. And that angle on MTV um, blew my 11 year old mind uh, out of the water. And I remember running into my parents, giving them color commentary. They have no idea what I'm talking about or what I'm watching. I'm talking a mile a minute, um, you know, but as a kid and as, as the thing that kind of prompted this fandom that would eventually become, you know, uh, a profession and career, that's really that thing that in execution, when you look at it, uh, is, is so simple. It's a ref bump. It's heels threatening the celebrity coming out, um, and then and then the babyface making the big comeback and a big big pull apart. Um, you know, there's not a, there's no monster trucks. You know, there's no uh, you know outside what have you like special effect anything like that. Um, that really just blew my mind away, and uh, I always remember it. Well, the book is "There's Just One Problem." It's available now on pre-order, and it comes out on Tuesday. Um, Brian Gewertz, thank you so much for joining me today on Under the Ring Pro Wrestling Conversations. I have been looking forward to this for so long, and then just getting it delayed again just made it even better. So thank you oh, so thank much you for joining us. Hopefully it didn't disappoint. Hopefully, uh, you know, we could text each other at City Field sometime in October, <laughs> late in the playoffs, if not the World Series. That sounds great to me. <laughs> Thanks again, everyone, for joining me today on Under the Ring Pro Wrestling Conversations. I'd like to thank Brian Gewertz. I'd also like to thank Estefania Aquaviva from 12 Books. 
for her assistance with this. I'd also like to thank my old podcasting friend, Alan Wojcik, for making the introduction that got this ball rolling. Join us next week where my guest will be from All Elite Wrestling, Eddie Kingston. I have really been looking forward to talking to Eddie Kingston for some time, so that ought to be fun. Have a great weekend, everyone.